We talk a lot about change, innovation, transformation. It's one of the hot topics that everybody cares about. But how do you drive change? And what's the difference between somebody who's, shall I say, merely a change agent versus somebody who's actually making change? That's our topic today on CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman. I'm an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. Before I introduce our guest, please, please, right now, subscribe on YouTube. That helps us a lot. So I'm very thrilled. I'm really happy today to introduce Amy Radin, who is the author of the book, The Change Makers Playbook. And previously, she was the Chief Innovation Officer at Citi. So she knows of what she speaks. Amy, how are you? I'm so thrilled that you're here and welcome to CXO Talk. I'm great, Michael. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Amy, uh, tell us about your book, The Changemakers Playbook. Well, I got this idea about five or six years ago to write the book from a friend of mine who's a journalist. And a few years ago, I decided to leave the corporate world, where, as you said, I held, I held some big innovation and digital transformation roles and really had developed a passion for the hows of innovation. You know, to me, ideas are easy. The hard part is actually driving the change and driving driving the implementation through these tough, tough organizations. And I really wanted to share my expertise with other people facing similar challenges. And that's what, what really led me to write the book. Okay, so I'm going to hold up a copy of the book and I hope, uh, and I've been reading it and really enjoying the book. So I think the best place to start is you talk about the change makers playbook. And so maybe we need to talk about what is a change maker? Right, it's, it's a great question. And um, the, the literature and language student in me, um, you know, I think words are very important. And I searched around for quite a while to say, how do you actually characterize this, this persona who I'm thinking about? And, um, and really change, change maker, it's a very empowering word. It's a word that thinks about how do you actually make change real? It's, it's about execution and it's about change with a purpose because change by itself is just about making something different. When I talk about innovation, it's really making change very purposefully to solve the problems that real people have. And, um, and the change maker is the person who, who makes that happen. So tell us about, so you, you say purpose. So how is, how, what, it, what is purposeful change? Is that even the right way to, to talk about it, Amy? To, to use that term purposeful. Yeah, purpose is really important. To me, the notion of purpose is having a, having a destination, having a sense of what's the impact that you want to have, and then aiming all of your energies at it um, with, with great passion. I think without a purpose, um, you know, that destination of where you want to go, what's the impact that you want to have, um, you could end up with change for change's sake, but not an outcome that represents the answer to, you know, as I said, for a real problem, which, which for me is what, what innovation is all about. So you need to drive that desire for change to some type of specific outcome that's related to whatever it is you're trying to accomplish in your business, your organization, what have you. Yeah, what I talk about in the Change Makers Playbook is the starting point is really 
uh, for innovation is about discovery. So being immersed in, you know, out in the world with people you're interested in. And if you think about the found, you know, startup founders, oftentimes when you ask them, you know, how'd you get the idea? Whatever it's doing, they hit upon a real problem that was confounding them in their own lives. So being immersed um, among people who interest you, who have real problems that you care about, is sort of what discovery is about. And then, um, and then going after the answers. Um, I talk a lot about passion, almost, you know, I think it's very much linked to purpose because innovation is so hard. Now, when you're trying to drive change and do something new, you're trying to coax people or a way of doing things out of some form of inertia. So to me, passion is that fuel that helps you have the energy to actually overcome the inertia that that's just kind of natural. It's human nature. So this raises a really very, very interesting question. And you know, actually, I, I forgot to tell everybody that right now there's a tweet chat happening. And so come on Twitter, use the hashtag CXOTalk, and you can join this conversation and you can share your thoughts on innovation and ask Amy Radin any questions that you might have. So, Amy, this notion of passion being the fuel that drives innovation, I'm just thinking about large companies that so often seem to have a way of kind of weeding the passion out. And so what do we, maybe touch on that. I mean, it's definitely a mindset and a type of person who goes at things. I, I often credit my own uh, persistence as, as an innovator with, in big companies with the fact that I was raised in the middle of five children. And so when you're in that kind of, you know, five pretty competitive children. So, um, you know, you kind of learn to, to stand, stand up and stand out and speak up for your beliefs. But um, it, it definitely is... Uh, takes a personality and a mindset to want to go after things. I also think that that sometimes, and I, I hear this a lot from startup founders sometimes, they'll, they can sometimes be a little dismissive of, of big companies and the employees of big companies and sort of say, oh, they're just dinosaurs. They're not going to, you know, they're, they're not going to get anything done. They can't lumber. But you have to kind of look beyond the name over the door. And I know in my own experience working at places like City, American Express, AXA, um, there are lots of people who have career runways, who are very talented and skilled, who really, uh, you know, they need to see that the CEO is behind innovation, that they have, that there's a psychological safety net so they can try things and, you know, and fail, you know, a word that nobody ever likes to use in our society, um, that they will be empowered and that somebody will help them overcome the inevitable, bureauc the inevitable bureaucracy that's sort of laced into big companies just because they have a way of doing things. They have rules, they have policies, they have procedures, they have regulations. And um, your average, like even high-performing person in the middle or bottom of the organization simply doesn't have the authority to get past that stuff. So they need to see that sort of umbrella of support over them. And, and then you, you unleash a lot of innovation energy in any of these companies. You know, I guess my, my question as I'm listening to you talk is, yeah, it all sounds great. And, and motherhood and apple pie also is really great. But how do we, how do we get there? You know, I, I've learned it, it's you, you start small. I, I can share some stories with you about my own experiences. I, and I spent most of my career 
as a marketer in a very traditional direct marketing and, and brand management roles. And one day my CEO uh, came to me and he said, you know, you need to make this business more innovative because we're not innovative and we need to be. And I started to think about, well, what does that mean? Um, and, and literally uh, our starting point at the time was um, since, of course, I, like a lot of CEOs, he asked me to take on this challenge and no extra budget or resources. Got a few volunteers on my team, said like, who wants to help me figure this out? And we said, well, hey, let's understand what are the trends impacting our industry? This was the you know, $5 billion bottom line credit card industry. What are the trends? What can we understand about the unmet needs of our, our customers? Um, what technologies can be applied to our business? And literally started to um, sort of prioritize what do we think could be of value? And then getting out as quickly as possible with experiments and as close to live tests. I think there's no substitute. Innovation doesn't come about from PowerPoints. It comes about from as closely as possible, uh, prototyping and um, bringing to life a real manifestation of what you need and getting feedback from, from your potential customers. So the passion that you described earlier then needs to be applied to uh, understanding customer needs, number one, and then to solving those needs. And then the, the mechanism or the method you were just describing is essentially to be iterative, experimenting. Let's try something. Let's see if it works. Let's try the next thing. Is that a correct sort of? Absolutely. It's all about, in, in the book, I talk about this sort of three-part framework, seeking, which is all about um, discovering the insights about the unmet, you know, the unsolved problems that you want to solve and framing a purpose around there, um, figuring out, uh, you know, it, and how are you going to do that in a way that's, that's quite scrappy? Because no matter where you are, you probably, unless you've got a trust fund, you're not going to have a lot of resources at that point. Then seeding, it's all about prototyping and it's like iterating. How can you put together even paper or cardboard or just, you know, band-aids and rubber band kind of manifestations of what you mean? Put your, put your idea in the hands of, of potential users and keep listening, uh, getting feedback, improving, getting to the point where you have an understanding of feasibility. Not only do people want it, can you build it? And is it, you know, operationally possible? And then... Um, the magic moment when you when you do have enough resources to actually create what you've got, moving on to the third phase, which is scaling. Now, you're really going to market and and building a meaningful user base. So, but but throughout the entire um, innovation journey, uh, you're always iterating. Why is scale so important? Rise to the level that you included it as part of your basic framework. Well, as I said before, the you know innovation has many many definitions. It's one of those used and abused uh, phrases in the business lexicon. The the definition that I adhere to is viable, uh, you know, this viable solutions to real world problems. Um, and a big aspect of viability is um, is it economically economically legally operationally feasible. And if you're not going to have if you're not going to have scale. It will be hard to have um, something that's economically feasible, but also you're not really solving the problem. 
You know, you, in the end, you want to reach a user group so that you're meaningfully helping people. And um, I guess I also focused on it because what I see oftentimes, and, and you've probably had this experience as well, is that sometimes the, the people who are really great at the vision, coming up with the concept, doing the prototyping, may not be the people or may not by themselves have the skill set to move up to scale. And so I think it's, it's important to take into account, how am I going to get there and have the impact I want to have? That's where scale really comes about. I want to remind everybody, we're talking with Amy Radin, who is the author, you can see, of the Change Makers Playbook. And there's a tweet chat right now taking place where you can join us, uh, go, to C go to Twitter using the hashtag CXOTalk. So Amy, uh, so ultimately then you've got to ensure, for, based on what you're saying, you've got to ensure that the problem you're solving is a meaningful problem, which can only be calibrated or understood going back to customer needs. So does that place the burden of innovation in a sense kind of upstream before you begin innovating, you've got to the organization or somebody's got to be understanding and working and listening to what customers really need. I think that's absolutely right. And I, I see that as the responsibility of everybody in a business. You know, we should all be we should all be listening to to our customers all the time. I don't I don't see understanding people's needs as the domain of, you know, a market research department or an analytics group. I think if you um, if you care about your brand and want to build uh, your business or your, your social endeavor, um, no matter where you are, what function or what industry, in a world like ours, where people's needs and, and habits are changing from one day to the next, technology is, is affecting all of our lives so dramatically, we just all have to stay in touch with what our users want and how we can help them, or it's very hard to, for any brand to stay viable if, if all employees aren't, aren't doing that. You know, let me ask you uh, another point of practical advice. Um, so I see, I work with a lot of different companies, large companies for the most part, some smaller ones too, and very often there's this kind of, the, it's almost like anti-innovation antibodies. Right. And I know the reason why that happens, right? It's because we have, if I'm working in a company, I have my metrics, I know what's gonna get me my bonus, and now you come along and you tell me I need to do something differently, and you know what? I'm not interested because I'm not gonna get my bonus if you do what you say, even if it's great for the customer. So what do I do? What do we, what do, we do about that? It's a leadership challenge, Michael. I think that, you know, if you look at the, the stories about companies that succeed or fail at, at innovation, even to the point for the latter group that they disappear, there's a, a, an inability on the part of leadership up to the C-suite and the board to, to demonstrate through uh, not just talk, but also behavior, uh, goals, uh, talent decisions, that this is in fact a priority of the organization and that, you know, even as uh, businesses have to deliver on short-term uh, shareholder objectives, 
there's also a vital need to pay attention to uh, where do we need to go. Um, and that's, that's for many companies becoming a matter of survival. The thing that's interesting is that, and this was something I, I have learned a lot in the last four or five years is I've spent a significant amount of time uh, working with startup founders and their teams, is that sometimes, uh, you know, we, we who have spent a lot of time in the corporate world, uh, maybe a little too often put resourcing on the critical path. You know, oh, you want me to go to do that? Well, I need a team, I need a budget, I need this, I need that. And it's been really eye-opening for me to work with founders and see how they get prototypes uh, to get even that first that first tranche of angel funding with with very few resources. And um, so there's a way. I think you know, big companies, mature companies are are engineered for predictability and continuity. It's that crank that's turning. And that's really, really important. You want to serve large customer bases with quality. You have to be compliant. Um, you want your systems to be up and running. You have to present, protect from cyber threats. There's a whole lot of reasons why continuity, predictability, and stability are really, really important. And we all want that. However, um, innovation introduces discontinuity. So I think the reason this is a leadership challenge is that up to the CEO and board level, you've got to sort of keep that continuity going but not have the discontinuity of, in, of innovation feel like, oh my God, they just thrown a bolt into my gears. So how do you, how do you have both? That's, that's leadership and also comes down to very much talent. Who's on the bench and what are people motivated to do? Um, is the CEO creating that psychological safety net so that people can, because if, if you're not failing, if, you're, if some of your experiments aren't just being totally written off, you're not pushing hard enough for real innovation. All right. Let me make this yet uh, more personal again, okay? Okay. So, and not, st it's not strictly personal about me, but, but personal individual people working inside a company. So here I am. I'm a middle-level manager. I have people, I have people, I have kids in college. Right. And you're saying, and my CEO is saying, Innovation is our priority. We care about, you know, we're going to do this, innovate, blah, blah, blah. And I'm listening to this and I'm saying, not interested because I need to make my bonus. I mean, that's, you've got, so you've got the entire weight of the company sort of fighting the goal of the CEO right. who's saying, we're going to innovate because we're great. And we listen, not only that, we listen to our customers. <laughs> Yeah, that's the, you know, if you recall, I said, it's, it's talk and action. So you're right. I think it's almost, um, it's counterproductive to stand up in front of your organization and wave the flag and say, go do this. Um, I mean, innovation, like any other discipline, requires um, skill, right? It requires a certain mix of talent. So the same way as you're not going to get up in front of a group of people and say, go fight that fire, you know, without the right gear and skill sets, or go build that new system, um, you, it's, 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 not a, it's not a fair challenge to send people out on that mission without equipping them and giving them the opportunity to, to equip themselves with the, with the skill sets. All right, fair enough. So, so 
let's say that we've we've sort of overcome the leadership challenge, and at least I've got a few people inside the company. So now I'm senior management. I've got a few people right. inside the company, or I'm one of those few people who really I believe, right? I mean, I know that we have to do this, and it's and not only that, it's the right it's the right thing to do for for survival and just just ethically, it's the right thing to do. Right thing to do, and I want to do it. What do I do? What are the steps? How do I? What are the steps I take? And I'm and I'm willing to jump in. I don't forget putting together a team. I don't have any resources, and they're not giving me any resources. So what do I do? I've certainly, over the course of my career, had people. I've had those middle managers uh, come into my office or come into my, you know, come up, come into my cubicle and say, "Hey, you know, we we have this we have this idea. There's something we think would be would be a really smart thing to do for our customers," and then. Um, you know, partner with them on how do you how do you drive it forward? Can you articulate the concept in words? Can you draw me a picture of what it looks like? Let's understand at least hypothetically what are the business model drivers that you think are going to move. Um, let's think about the size of the market. So I think putting together and and what would you have to believe to earn one percent market share. So I think there are some very basic steps that that any manager can do. Um, I mean, takes time, takes effort, but but at the beginning can start off as as a pretty you know rough hewn qualitative uh, process and and good guesswork just based on judgment and your knowledge of your sector to define a concept. I think what happens oftentimes. Is uh, you know even though we have we have uh, two ears and only one mouth, uh, we tend to be better at jumping to opinions and telling people what's wrong, as opposed to listening. And I think that the there's a better chance of cultivating that rough. Hey, what do you think of this conversation? If the answer is not, oh, we tried that before. Uh, no, that'll never work. How will we ever make any money? I mean, we've all heard those answers. Um, I say if you come back, if, if you're working with a manager or a team who's able to come back and say, well, tell me more about that, or what made you think of that, or gee, let's think this through. And it's frightening for somebody um, in a very established traditional company where it's that continuity thing is what is generally reported. It's, it is very frightening to come forward and say, I want to do this other thing, because you're right. People have families, they have bills to pay, they may have college tuition, they have a mortgage, they have student loans. Um, you're taking personal risk. So, you know, a part of what I think, you know, if you, if you want to be a change maker and you don't see that hook in the environment that you're in, where you can get, you know, your idea can start to get a breath of life, right? A shot at life. You may have to ask yourself at some point, am I in the right culture? Um, and 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 decamp to a place where where there is a greater receptivity. I was very lucky. I I oh I worked at at brands and under under managers under leaders who um who who gave my teams and I that space. You raise a uh, an important point. It's funny as you were talking earlier. I was thinking that for the really for for talented folks. Who are willing to take on the innovation challenge and think about customers and and also to weave in business models, which you just mentioned, 
and do all of this with no resources because it's just the right thing to do on, on multiple levels, if they're not getting a receptive hearing, those are going to be the most talented employees you've got as well and the most energetic and most passionate. And if, if you don't respond, those people will leave. I think that's absolutely right. And that's kind of the hidden uh, cost or benefits, depending on how you look at it, of innovation that I think especially, and what I've always found, it's not just in today's world. I can think back to the beginning of my corporate career over 20 years ago, that um, people who, who have uh, personal aspirations in their careers and who see themselves as having a career runway will always ask, where's this place going? Is there a commitment to a future? Am I working for a brand that respects and values its customers and that is always anticipating and building towards future opportunities? In today's world, that really is a matter of survival. And I think the better, I think the talent who can really drive growth are gonna self-select into uh, career environments where they're able to fulfill their passions and, and drive the kind of impact that they want to have. You know, it's interesting. Today, I just read earlier that Jeff uh, Bezos from the, the CEO of, of Amazon said at an all-hands meeting of his employees that Amazon will go out of business because the lifetime of a large corporation uh, to, to be profitable and survive is more like 30 years rather than 100 years. And so the question becomes, he said to his employees, what do we need to do to delay that time? And we can do that only by being responsive to our customers. And so my question, so my question back to you then is, we hear lots of talk about customer experience. And so right. where does that link into this conversation about innovation and being a change maker? Sure. Well, I think, you know, oftentimes, you know, the natural place that a lot of uh, companies go when they think about innovation is product. Now, I need to make another product. And then I'll have, I get more shelf space and I can get more, more sales and more, more revenue and more profits. The problem with that is because uh, the cost of technology have come down and any of us can start a global business manufacturing across the world from our kitchen tables, um, product innovation has a pretty short shelf life. It's the easiest to copy. And so it's about the worst place to limit yourself in terms of a defensible, a differentiated new market position. Experience, on the other hand, is very uh, broad. And I think sometimes people shy away from it because it is, it's, it's, it's more nuanced. It's more complex. It's not a silver bullet. But if you can think about from end to end the experience of how somebody solves a problem where you may step in from how they even figure out they have a problem to ultimately making a buying decision and then uh, you know having an after-purchase experience, there are many steps along the way. So you think I spent a couple of years working in the life insurance industry, and that's an industry that I think is going to be, you know, even in insurance, at the slow end of, of change, extremely complex um, industry. But if you look along the, uh, the entire experience from what causes somebody to get up in the morning and think they need to own life insurance to 
what is it like to actually own that policy? There are many, there's almost an unlimited set of places where your intervention as an innovator in the experience can differentiate you and endear you to your uh, policyholders. And so I think you have a lot more opportunity when you think about the experience and what you end up creating becomes much more ownable by your brand. So is there, so therefore the implication obviously is it seems to me that that organizations that are looking at innovation need to spend at least as much time on uh, on that end-to-end customer experience as they do on their product. Yes, and I think companies, I'm doing advisory work with some startups right now, and, and one of the companies which will go unnamed, it's a fantastic, uh, fantastically innovative, very successful company, amazing uh, tech capabilities, incredibly talented people, um, product pushers. And the conversation I keep having with them as we talk about uh, business development and how to increase increase their presence in large enterprises, which is where they they want to sell, it's really got to think about stand in the shoes of your potential customer and forget about your product and your sales goals. Think about what what's their job like? Uh, what's their boss hammering them about? What what are they like as a human being? They're not just a title. Right, and how can I really help them succeed? So it's that attitude of how can I help the people I want to serve be successful, versus how can I get them to buy my thing? And starting with like that mindset shift gets you right into experience, and as I said, gives you a much bigger opportunity set than if you're just thinking, "Gee, I want to make another," you know, "I want to make another version of what I already have." We have a question from Twitter that's related to all of this, which is, how do you approach business model innovation? It's one of the things you touched on earlier, so I'm glad this question uh, came up. Yeah, it's a great question. And business model innovation, I think, is one of the, the toughest nuts to crack when you think about all the different types of innovation. So I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you about a process that we used um, early days in the credit card business when we were really trying to understand what are the implications of digital on that business. And a lot of the stuff, you know, now it's going to seem really old hat, but then it was pretty breakthrough. We, we said, look, what are, the, what are the customer behaviors that impact our business model today? And obviously, credit card's pretty straightforward. You've got to, people apply for the card, they get the card, they use the card, they keep the card, they pay their bill or not. You know, there's like seven or eight behaviors. And then we started to, and those are all elements of the customer experience, and they're very important to the business model. We started experimenting around um, if we do this, you know, sort of playing out if that's with live testing. And what's really important when you think about business model innovation is you can't just look at one line in the in the PL, the balance sheet. You've got to look at the totality um, and and not assume because many counterintuitive things um, can happen. But I think getting to those drivers of behavior and starting to conduct experiments and looking at the total impact um, can point you in new directions. That's interesting. So so can you elaborate on this point that you have to look at the totality of, of customer interactions, relationships, as opposed to looking at one line item when it comes to business model innovation? Sure. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you an, an example. Again, back to, back to my time in credit cards. Um, you know, the, the credit card industry ha- charges late fees, right? 
And we, we all know about that, even though hopefully none of us are paying them. But the, the industry charges late fees. And at one point um, in our business, we saw late fees going down. And so people, some people were speculating like, wow, um, people are paying their bills online. So late fees are going down. Um, that might not be a good thing for our, certainly good for the customers, but you know, not for our business. Well, we, we went in and did the complete end-to-end -end analysis by customer segment. And in fact, no surprise, what we found out is, at, yes, indeed, there was a segment of people who were paying their bills more quickly and avoiding late fees. They were also more loyal to the product and, and, and having higher, more profitable usage. So our offering, our making it easy for people to pay their bills online, a customer experience innovation, um, moved two different spots in the PL. But if you only looked at one, you would have thought, oh my God, I have a problem. My business model is breaking. But when you step back and looked at the customer PL, um, it's like, wow, this is great. I have a healthier customer relationship. Better for them, better for me. But that's a really hard thing to do for many companies because because they're siloed, right? They have a, a siloed bureaucracy that maybe bureaucracy is too harsh a term, although I'm not sure. Well, they're bureaucracies. So, <laughs> so, so they have siloed organization that looks at, uh, at a piece of the customer, not at the whole customer relationship, which makes it almost impossible to understand how the pieces link together. Well, you may find that, are, and you're right. And then you get down to to real basic nuts and stuff, nuts and bolts stuff like accounting systems. Uh, you know, I've been in organizations where there's no real activity based costing. So if you have one segment of your population that's more digitally engaged, so their servicing costs are lower, you you can't you can't reward the product manager or segment manager for that benefit. So there's all kinds of issues up and down. I think in a situation where the data may be siloed or people don't want to give you the data. You know, the systems may not give it. You may have to start with uh, with a quantitative survey. You may have to start, you know, with some kind of ad hoc analysis. You may have to do something manual. I remember early on, uh, at one point, we were we were bringing digital into the business and people were saying, well, what's the impact on the call center? Are telephone calls going up or down because of digital? That's like a really basic question, right? Well, it turned out the way the call, the way the operation system was built for the call center, it literally did not capture the data that we needed in the logs, so we could even do that analysis. And I had an analyst doing it manually with tick sheets and Excel, you know, to do do a sample of at least a couple of hundred, so we could start by figuring it out. Then, when you start to see it's worthwhile, you know, at some point you've got to say, okay. I've got to, I've got to, you know, re I've got to change my system so I can't capture a track. But even just, just forget about silos, just, just tracking um, may not be in place because the systems were built for other purposes. You, you start with a manual sample and see if it's worth continuing. So you've got to essentially figure out how can you collect the right type of data so that you can really understand what's going on. Because if you look at one piece of data without understanding the totality of that customer relationship, you may right. be optimizing for the wrong thing, essentially. Yeah, and I think the challenge a lot of businesses have is, you know, I think most companies are optimized for product. Now you have to measure and reward, and product is, is tried and true, more straightforward. It's a little bit of like, you know, twisting your arm in the wrong direction. 
to all of a sudden say, well, let me understand the customer view. And I think even in 2018, um, there is there is no CEO who will say they're you know they don't want to be customer centric. Um, metrics and tracking uh, continue to be challenging when it comes to really understanding um, understanding customers as as whole people and human beings in their relationship with your business. It's always going to be it's virtually always going to be a little jerry rig. Maybe not at a company like Amazon that's so advanced and sophisticated, but in general, it's it's going to be a little jerry-rigged, at least. So you mentioned metrics. What are the metrics that are associated with change-making and innovation? I mean, I know at the end, it's like, okay, well, the metric is, are we making more money? But that takes time. And how do you know you're going in the right direction along the way? Well, the, the caution I always uh, give change-makers when they think about metrics is, that one of the best ways to kill an innovation is to impose the overly precise metrics of a traditional business on your innovation. So just think about this. If, if, if you are creating something that's truly innovative, um, how is it possible that the way you measured something else, you know, maybe for decades, is the right set of metrics to impose? And if you have no in-market experience, is it appropriate to try to even build uh, a PL? And I learned this, you know, full PL. So I, I learned this years ago, early in my career. Um, I was working on a new product, and my team and I went to our president to show him what we had. And you know, we had the spreadsheet carried out, you know, the five-year net present value and everything to the penny. He started laughing. And I said, How could you possibly know this? So it was great to get that kind, very empowering to get that direction from uh, from division president in a Fortune 100 company. You don't awfully, you know, that was very liberating. Um, and so when you're early in the game, much more productive to say, okay. Um, and one of the questions I ask is, what would you have to believe to get one percent market share? So you know, do a rough schematic that helps you understand. Well, what's the demographic and, and you know profile of the people who I think would want this innovation? Uh, tons of public data, you know, you do a sizing, and then say, well, what if I got one percent? Because one percent is pretty hard to get one percent market share. So, um, but it, it's a kind of credibility test, and then you can start to look at, well, what do I think the major drivers of revenue would be? You write down the line items. What do I think the major expense areas would be and where would I have to invest capital? So at least you have a list of the literals. And then, you know, we used to go um, in one of my innovation roles, we would start those discussions out with um, small, medium, low. We'd have a discussion around metrics uh, without numbers. Um, and then we would do this 1% test. So I think, think about how much precision is reasonable at what point in the game. And as you're iterating with your prototypes and tests, um, seek to gather the data that will allow you to get more and more precise. That, that's really what's happening in the seeding phase. When you get to the business model and that green light moment when you're funded, it's sort of the results of your prototyping and your work on the business model are converging. Amy, I asked you earlier what should what should uh, innovative employees do that are struggling for support? 
But what about uh, senior managers who are innovative and they're having trouble finding employees who really want to get on that bandwagon? What should senior executives do in that case? Yeah. Well, first of all, I can tell you, it's having been a chief innovation officer twice at both City and E-Trade, it's, it's a lonely job. I mean, like a lot of jobs in the C-suite, you're up there, uh, people below uh, may be afraid to tell you what's going on. People above are very demanding and you have to be accountable to them. Uh, your colleagues are worried about what you're up to. So it's lonely and um, no matter what level you're at. And what has been um, amazingly helpful uh, for me always in this role is to find like-minded people, either inside or outside. So really having a network of fellow innovators, there are lots of um, lots of uh, networking groups and professional organizations where you can find uh, fellow innovators. They may not have the innovation title. They could be technologists. They could be marketers. They could be product people. They could be digital. It's really a mindset and a focus. But 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 find, having that network of like-minded people who you can kick around problems with and with whom you can brainstorm, really important. Uh, the other thing about finding the change-making talent in the organization, you know, a change-maker is really, it's very unlikely that all the skills and leadership qualities of a change-maker are going to be in one person. Um, it's really a composite. And so if you're the senior manager and you want to build some innovation capability in your organization, I would encourage you to try to assemble that small group of people who are very diverse in terms of their backgrounds, their life histories, their functional skill sets, their perspectives, but who are collaborative and good listeners. And give those people the air cover. So, you know, I've been in situations where I've come into roles where people said, oh, you're gonna have to get rid of those people. You know, they're, they're, they're just terrible. And in the end, there are always diamonds in the rough who you can, who you can identify, you can empower, with the right role and some air cover, and you will you will find some talent, um, and then and then through your outside network, you can fill in the gaps. Okay, we're we're winding down now, but we have another really interesting question from Twitter. How do you determine the right metrics to capture, and what if that means change that you have to change the business? Not a, not an easy answer to that question, but I would say depending upon where you are with your innovation. It all goes back to, it, I think a good place to focus is, who are, the, who are the customers with whom I want to you know, direct my future? What are their needs and behaviors? And how do I see them behaving even in the category in a way that would give me a fix on where is their, um, where is their opportunity? Um, and, and and conduct as many experiments as you have. You know, I think one of the things that holds us back on a business model, we get very trapped inside how the revenues and expenses happen. And there has to be almost for, your, for the experimentation piece of your life, a little bit of suspension of belief that you're willing to go and muck around with some ideas and not impose uh, preconceived notions of how you're, going to, how you're going to create the business model but you let the data emerge from how people are behaving. And, um, and there will always be surprises. Um, you know, uh, sometimes things won't work, but there will be positive surprises if you can just sort of control yourself uh, 
from letting your existing knowledge um, sort of filter out the the new the new the new gold the new gold nuggets. Okay, excellent advice, Amy. As we finish up, what advice do you? I mean, you've been you've been studying. You've been you've lived this. You've studied it. You've written a book about it all. So if you were to sum up everything that you've learned, low these many years and experiences that you've had, what advice would you have to share to any audience that you think would be appropriate? I think, um, and this has been a, a great journey for me because I innovated my career, right? I, I undertook a tremendous pivot now personally in the last couple of years. I'd say, um, thinking back to my corporate roles and even more recently, um, you've got to connect to what it is you're passionate about and and get out into the world to see how other people are you know connecting with people who share your passion and from whom you can learn so it's very much about the the network so if i had to like shortlist it's get in touch with what you're passionate about and get out into into a network um, to connect with like-minded people and and things will start to happen. So another way of saying it might be uh, figure out what you really care about, do it, and then find others who care about something similar who will join you in that. Yeah, because the the idea of the lone wolf innovator is a real fallacy. Um, Really takes a team and, and you can't be resourceful without a great network and you won't have resources when you start. So it, it, everything is about your relationships and, and your network and your passion as a starting point. I love this. I mean, you speak with somebody who's really obviously done it. When you talk about you won't have resources when you start, you know, that's that's the way it works. It is. And I'm, I'm a pragmatist. I am not, uh, I'm not a blue sky, cool stuff innovator. I'm about, you know, getting stuff done. Um, but it, but it, it starts with passion. It doesn't start with a spreadsheet. Okay, Amy Raiden, thank you very much for spending this time with us today on CXO Talk. Wow, another really fast conversation. I wish we had like a few hours to to have these discussions because the topics are very rich. We've been speaking with Amy Raiden, and you can see her book here, The Change Maker's Playbook. It's a book that is obviously born of both research and personal experience, and that's the best. Everybody, thank you so much for watching. Before you go, please subscribe on YouTube. And would you also please, please tell your friends and tell your colleagues about CXO Talk because we need your support. Go to cxotalk.com. We have a huge number of videos and there's more coming up. Thanks so much, everybody, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you.